This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at reactroundup.com slash kendoui. Hello and welcome to React Roundup. I'm your host, Nader Dabit. Today on our show, we have Jared Palmer. Jared, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. It's going good. Um, today, our topic is going to be Razzle, and we're also maybe going to talk about a few of the other projects that Jared is working on over there at his company. Um, but before we kind of get into the topic, can you give us a quick intro, kind of talking about how you got into programming and kind of how you um, got into open source, I guess? Sure. So, hi, Jared Palmer. I am the lead engineer at the Palmer Group, where I spend my days building apps and services for uh, companies that mostly have been underserved by the technological changes of the last two decades and building tools to automate that process. Uh, I got into programming sort of by accident. I was um, really into design after I graduated in school. Uh, I was going to be a banker, but that didn't quite work out. Um, and so I started this uh, app with a, a friend of mine, which is an Android app. And it was a, basically a content management platform for Android phones, um, focusing on one specific part of the phone itself, which would be the lock screen. So basically, it's a, not too dissimilar to Snapchat Stories. Uh, we had a SDK and uh, Android framework, so to speak, that allowed companies and other apps to build Android um, lock screen applications really quickly. So that's how I sort of got my foray, foray into first steps into programming. Although I didn't do too much of it, I was mostly on the design side of things. But in order to um, design cooler and cooler stuff, I ended up learning Framer.js. And that's what taught me JavaScript. That's a prototyping uh, software. And then from there, I just started building more websites, ended up selling that company. And then I discovered React. And uh, the rest is kind of history. It just got kind of got hooked. So what is Razzle? Um, I'm, I'm looking at the documentation. I have not yet used it. So I'm kind of curious, like, what's the elevator pitch for Razzle? Create React app with server-side rendering. And not just any type of server-side rendering, specifically dynamic uh, server-side rendering. So what does that mean? So if you look at a thing like Gatsby, which is a static site generator, Gatsby.js, that project is all about rendering the content ahead of time. And then after the output is a static HTML page, which is slightly different than Razzle's project uh, goal, which is to be the best dynamic server rendering um, uh, build toolkit out there. So a dynamic server rendering, you don't necessarily know what's going to be on the page when you visit the URL. And a good example of that is like um, Airbnb.com where on a given listing, they're not really sure what's going to be there. They, based on the current tooling that exists in the universe, I'll say, um, statically rendering those pages ahead of time is just too much to ask considering the popularity of Airbnb. So similar to the way that WordPress generates the page on every single request, dynamic server rendering toolkit like Razzle uh, will do the same thing. So uh, that's the goal. And then the flip side of that, that's like the target audience. And then the goal there was to basically 
make it as easy to migrate from Create React app to Razzle and add server-side rendering to your application as possible. So it uses the same CSS setup as uh, Create React app. There's some slight differences. Unlike Create React app, you can't, you, in Razzle, you have access to the Webpack configuration, so you can make those changes you really want to, you know, if you want to add a loader here or there, you can do that. Um, so that's, I guess, one key difference. But yeah, that's basically the gist of the project. Create React app with server-side rendering. So let's take a step back and like talk about server-side rendering. Um, I know that seems to be a pretty popular topic over the last year in the React community, you know, adding server-side rendering to React um, or the React ecosystem. But like, what are the benefits of doing that? Like, is that just going back to the days of when you had a PHP page that kind of like served up your application and then when you want to visit another route, you just render the entire thing on the server? Or is this a little, is this a little different like when we're, now that we're using React or kind of like, what are the benefits? Like, why are people even doing server-side rendering? Sure. So even though Google, Google's latest, like, crawlers can evaluate JavaScript, can even, you can see that from your, if you ever tried, like, the Lighthouse test, Google's crawlers can evaluate JavaScript. And, but Facebook's not so much, and neither um, can Twitter's. And so when you want to have really great SEO, search engine optimization, if that's important to you, high search ranking results are important to you, uh, you need to make sure that every page has the proper title, description, and likely uh, meta t- and meta tags. Those could be like open graph tags. Open graph tags, if you're not familiar, are some meta tags in the head of the HTML document that control what gets shown on Facebook when someone shares your link or on Twitter uh, when someone shares your link. Uh, and that um, basically requires server-side rendering. And the pitch there, the, the thinking there is, Think about what would come back if you curled the page. JavaScript, whatever you're, if you're putting something on the page with JavaScript and you curl that page, or that URL, you're not going to see whatever that is. And so the only way to do that, to, to have that curl come back with the correct titles and meta tags is to do server rendering. And in the past, you used to like, in the, you know, in the past, you used something like Rails where you connect directly to the database and you'd render the page with a, a template language. Now, React is way more powerful than any template language. And so with, uh, but it takes quite a bit of configuration to make the developer experience as good as it is on, with just the single page application and SPA, uh, with, with, um, with React. Um, and that's where Razzle comes in. There's, no, there, if you've heard of another framework called Next.js, it's probably the most popular. Same kind of thing. Uh, isomorphic JavaScript, universal JavaScript. That's the goal here. Uh, and using React as the view layer. Now, what's cool is with both toolkits, Next and Razzle, you don't need to think about, is this button going to work? And you don't also have to load a separate uh, JavaScript bundle just for the client, like you would if you were using Nunjux or Handlebars or another Node.js template language. It just magically works isomorphically. And the way that happens is React um, is able to what's called hydrate uh, once it renders in the server uh, when it gets picked up on the client, the same exact code kind of figures out, oh, this is, oh yeah, this is exactly what this application looks like. And it matches, well, it used to match a checksum and boom, now you're interactive on the client again. So it's kind of this interesting hybrid application where the first render gets you all the benefits of that old school Rails template kind of thing, right? Uh, or PHP. And then from there though, um, even though this is all node, it picks up and then it acts like a single page application. And all of that's powered through Razzle. What ended up happening with Razzle though, is after I built it, it turned out that it actually has very little to do with React. And it can be used with other 
So there's examples in the Razzle repo of usage with Elm and also Reason, and it would work with Vue, it would, it would work with Angular, pretty much any type of JavaScript framework that has server-side rendering and client-side rendering in some way to group the two together, Razzle will work with. And the reason for that is it's actually, Razzle is a, if effectively, if, to get technical, is basically a thin layer on around two Webpack um, watch tasks. One is watching the server bundle and bundling the server, and one is watching your client bundle and bundling the client, and it stays in sync. So when you make a change, both update, and there's no like checksum errors. It's kind of magical in that sense. And that's basically empowers you to do whatever you want when it comes to um, universal JavaScript. Um, so it's not, and also the, the, the pitch with Razzle too is that you're not buying into a framework that decides a lot about your app, the really important things in your application. So one of the constraints was I was working on an app that was with, uh, as soon as Next.js, this other similar uh, project came out, I was, I was trying to build something with Next.js and it was probably just too early. It was like a very early adopter. And, um, I just, it wasn't ready yet, basically. And there were some things that I wasn't in love with, like the way the file system was the, also your router it seemed kind of strange. And it just felt, I just got kind of scared. So basically, Razzle's my attempt to like abstract away the build system and leave all the rest of the architectural decisions to you, to the developer. Um, and yeah, that's basically the, the gist of the project. So how do you handle routing? So you can use React Router. That's what that's. I mean, if you're using React, which you don't have to, but you can use React Router. You can use React Router three. You can use React Router four. Uh, that's up to you, the developer. Um, the default is a React Router SS uh, server side application. I have another project called After.js, which implements a very similar um, framework approach that Next.js does, but it's built on React Router instead of a custom thing that Next.js uses, and has nothing to do with the file system. But yeah, basically I use React Router and um, I can get into that more if we want to go there. But um, yeah, it's, that's, that's the gist of it. So um, is, is like the only benefit SVO type of stuff or is there other, like, are there other benefits to server-side rendering? Um, there are some performance gains that can be had from server-side rendering just because you can split, I mean, you can code split too. So um, to change your question, the server-side rendering for Gatsby or something like that, where it's, it's also doing the, that same stuff, but it's doing it ahead of time, very similar. Um, and it ultimately, it just comes down to um, speed, I would say. But if, you, if, you, if you're building an application and you think it's a dashboard or something like that, that's going to be um, not, that doesn't need to show up in Google, that you're going to have a marketing page that shows up in Google, and that's how people are going to get to your app, you do not need server-side rendering, and it will probably cause you a lot of headaches. Um, things that are really easy um, um, in a single page application can be extremely challenging in a server rendered application. Mostly data fetching is that, and so is authentication. In a server rendered uh, um, application, you need to inject all your data from the top down, basically. Um, and if you don't inject it all the way from the top down, well, then you need to render twice at the moment where you need to render it, collect all the data, then wait for all the promises to resolve, and then somehow get it back down to where it's being requested in your component tree. Um, or you have to have some top-level massive function that's going to resolve before you send down that data so all your components have data. Um, and so that just makes things, just having top-down data fetching is just more difficult usually. And then also dealing with Sometimes things are, sometimes you're in a browser environment, sometimes you're in a, 
um, uh, Node.js environment, and there are differences still, even with Webpack, and that gets challenging at times as well. Um, so yeah, those are the, those are the two gotchas. But the uh, you know there are the, from a performance perspective, you can do stuff like streaming rendering, where you start sending HTML down to the client as soon as possible. And that can lead to even faster, like time to time to first bytes. And depending on if that's a constraint of your application, that can be very, very beneficial to the perception of responsiveness. Um, yeah, perceived performance, I'd say. So, yeah, avoid it unless you have to. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, so I'm trying to think, like, when we're so is is a app that's built with Razzle, is it still considered like a single page application at that point? Or is it more considered like a, not a single page application or, or can you use like the same, um, like concepts that we use in our normal uh, applications? Um, because I, I, I always find a hard time, um, wrapping my head around the server side stuff around react because I haven't had an opportunity to like be in a situation where I need to build one of these apps or I haven't had a requirement. So it's kind of like, you know, I'm still kind of trying to understand. And a lot of the people that I've talked to um, also have like this similar question, like, like, does it, does it become like no longer a single page application at that point? Are you more like uh, taking, so you're taking now, I guess, like the um, benefits that React has to offer and then like, um, but still using like the older model of, of uh, rendering like the main part of your application on the server? Right. So you are doing that. But the, the, the cool thing about something like Razzle is that you're not, you're not connecting to your database in some sort of view template. You're not going to go from direct to database to your view. Um, you're going to be writing a SPA and with a couple of changes, the de developer experience is very similar to an S uh, SPA, like, but you get all the benefits of server-side rendering. So there are some differences and they have to do with authentication. Uh, you need to use cookies instead of just tokens because that's the only way your server-side requests would be able to understand uh, how to authenticate a user. But you can fetch data in a similar fashion always, but to get it to server-side render, you're, there's just some way you need to take some sort of external data, some sort of external object and get it into React. And that's the like, tricky thing that everyone's been trying to do in different, various different ways. Um, you can do that with, you can start with just a, an object that's a route tree and for each route you list out, like this is the data it needs. Let's match on that route and render this. You can use some sort of tool. There are a bunch of them. There's React Resolver. There's, you can use Apollo. You can use various other ways to manage the data and get it into that. But generally speaking, it's an SPA that just so happens to serve a render is the best way to describe what that experience is like. But there are definitely gotchas that are that will that will that keep coming up that you just need to be aware of. Okay, cool. That explains a lot. Actually, that helps me understand a lot more. So, what were some of the technical difficulties, kind of putting this together? And, and also, I guess I'm not sure if you answered this already, but, but did this come out of uh, a need that you needed within your company that you were like building this, or you were thinking that this needs to be there for like your own use case, and then you were like, oh like this works pretty good, let me open source it. So basically what happened was I was working on this project for a client and I already had, I guess before that, had a pretty popular boilerplate project that was very, like it was just copy this and it'll work kind of thing for server side rendering. 
And it was one of the, and it was using some cool Webpack features to also do code splitting at the time, which, which is like Webpack one right now. Um, but then create react app came out and I was like, Oh, you can like reuse these. And instead of a boilerplate, you can make this like a toolkit. That's cool. And the distinction there is that you can up, unlike a boilerplate where you're just copying someone else's stuff, I can make a change to Razzle and all Razzle users can get that update because uh, it's just a package on NPM. It's just an abstraction. So um, between looking at Create React Apps code and then there was another project from the New York Times at the time called, or it still exists, it's called Kit, K-Y-T. And that was also very similar. And um, I looked at that and and I did that for a while, but still like hadn't quite, it wasn't, ex- I had some just opinionated um, opinions about stuff in kit that was very specific to the New York times, like the way they do styles and such that I just didn't jive with. And so it seemed like uh, probably should come up with something else. And so I didn't, I didn't fork kit. I basically, I don't know. It was just like a very similar, a similar approach to it more or less. And that's, and also create react app. And that's what sort of spawned me onto, and onto Razzle. And the big, the big thing there was I really wanted to use react router four. Um, and I really wanted control over all aspects of the project because I didn't know what my constraints were going to be like in the next few bit, the few bits. And also because it was a client project buying into a framework and my, you know, Next.js was also very young at the time. And so was kit. Um, that like make not owning the, the end-to-end experience didn't seem like a smart idea. And that's kind of where I landed there. The other thing too, is I already had experience um, with another a project of, of mine called Backpack, which is a lot like Razzle, believe it or not. It just doesn't deal with the client bundling. It just does the backend bundling. So it was kind of like a, a mashup of a bunch of sort of things I had seen, worked on, liked, didn't like, um, and yeah, the ultimate goal was just create React app server-side rendering. Uh, and that's sort of how it came to be. Very cool. Um, I like the idea um, of it being just like a generator and just being able to spin up a brand new project that actually just works without having to do any configuration because that's been like the hard thing for a lot of people that were getting into React before create React app came along. You know, I still see like some threads on Stack Overflow and, and, and I hear people talking about server rendering React applications. And I feel like they're in that same place where, where developers were before Create React App came along, where if you wanted to build something, like you had to do so much like setup and configuration that it was just a huge pain. And I feel like this probably just solves that pain. And the, the project that I was thinking about that, that reminded me a lot of this was what you mentioned uh, next. But um, like you mentioned, it is kind of like you're not really having full control over it because a lot of the dependencies are, are related to that framework. Does, does Razzle only kind of just use normal React stuff that's in the ecosystem? That, or like, so like when, when someone starts this project, do they have full ownership over configuration and stuff? Yeah, so you get full... Um, Razzle doesn't have any um, runtime dependencies. So it's not running. There's no like, you're never going to import Razzle in your source code. You could, you will need to reference an environment, a couple of environment variables that get injected. And that's just like paths to your assets. So you know where your CSS is going to get output to. But Razzle is no runtime dependency. And that's also a big difference between Razzle and um, Next. So Next is, uh, it's a framework. It has its own link. It has its own um, 
various other data, has its own data fetching stuff. As well as none of that. It's basically, it's just a layer of CLI tool that helps you with your webpack configuration and basically does the heavy lifting for you and then comes with the battery back included. But if you want to, you know, open up the, uh, and get in there, you absolutely can manipulate every single part of Razzle, um, every single part of the webpack configuration. There's a special function uh, or special file you can create called razzle.config.js that, uh, has a function in it that you just need to, um, you can manipulate called modify. And that takes in like, uh, the webpack configuration, whether it's targeting the server or the client bundle. And um, you can go to town, install other webpack loaders. You can do tons of different stuff. And then you can publish that package. You can actually publish that as a package. So if you need to share your Razzle setup across other projects, you can do that. Um, cars.com actually has a cool one where they have their entire Razzle setup um, in its own package. And that's what they use to like bootstrap new projects. Um, so that's kind of cool. Much more maintainable and sustainable than having everybody kind of getting back to the, doing their own sort of boilerplate and just keep forking that like doesn't quite work as well as uh, abstracting away into a package. So yeah, that sort of was the, that's sort of the, the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, come with the battery pack included, but give you the ability to configure if, if, if you're looking for total control. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the hosting provider I use for devchat.tv. I also use it for my applications that manage the RSS feeds, scheduling, and sponsorships involved in delivering these shows. DigitalOcean is easy to use, has data centers all over the world, and provides terrific services including server hosting and object storage for delivering your web applications and assets quickly and easily. I use DigitalOcean because I love their interface. I get SSD storage for my servers, and their support replies quickly. So go check them out at DigitalOcean.com. So... I guess in your like experience so far, was this like what level would you say as far as complexity kind of getting something ready like this that was ready for consumption by the average developer? Because I know a lot of times when you're building boilerplates, you have to think about opinions and how opinionated you'd like to be. I'm just kind of curious like how you came to certain decisions around that stuff and um, like and how um, so like, yeah, how you came to those decisions, but also like maybe what some of those decisions were around your opinionated, like uh, things that could have uh, gone other ways that you kind of chose a certain way, I guess you'd say. Sure. So basically, I, I, I liked a lot of the thinking of Create React app, which is that like, don't package anything. Give it, it's just React. It's just hello world, basically. Um, and that's all you get. Now, I went one step further than that, I would say, is because if you do Create Razzle app, which is a package it will give you an application with the same defaults as create react app basically, but plus react router already set up for you. And that's just most likely than not. My thinking was if you're using Razzle, you're probably going to end up with Re and your end react, you're probably going to end up with react router anyway. And I don't do anything about data fetching and that's where I drew the line. But I also made examples for not using react router, using preact and you can, or using TypeScript or using a handful of other, um, like common add-ons, I would say, or modifications, better word for that. And those are all in the examples directory and you can bootstrap those as well. And so, yeah, that's sort of, I wanted to just kind of take that, the route of create reactive, which is make very few assumptions. And what's re really nice about that is it's really good for demos because sometimes you just need to test something with server-side rendering in React and you want to boot something up really quickly, the same way you would with code sandbox or um, create react app and Razzle's just like that. Very, very, it doesn't have a lot of opinions 
there's no like there's a Redux example, but it doesn't come with Redux or anything like that. Um, as a, as sort of like I guess about a year or so later, I published after J after .js, which basically is the way I've been fetching data in my Razzle applications. And there's an example of that, uh, but that is completely optional. Um, and you can bootstrap that too if you want to, uh, very within like one or I think it's less than one line, uh, one command. And so, yeah, that's, that's sort of where my head was at was just stay agnostic. And that's kind of the power there is that Razzle is just the build toolkit. It's not really concerned about your anything else, even uh, doesn't care if you use React or not. Uh, and the thinking there was with all these new tools coming out like Reason or Elm, or Elm's not new, but like projects like Elm and whatever's going to come next you're probably going to want to incrementally adopt it. And if you don't have full control over the big parts of your application, like data fetching and your JavaScript framework and what Babel plugins you're using and whatever else, if you don't have complete control of some of those decisions, it could be really, really challenging to migrate and adopt or even, even test out what's coming next, right? So that was a big sort of constraint to me is I want to be able to test out what comes next um, very quickly. Uh, on an existing application, uh, and that, and sort of abstracting away the build toolkit from the architectural decisions of the application seemed like a way to do that. Well, I'm looking at your your GitHub. I had no idea you had so many open source projects. Like, uh, what's the difference between After and the main differences, I guess, between After and Razzle? So After JS is just a handful of components. If you look at the source, it's just a handful of components. When I first did, when I first released after, I actually like probably copied and pasted like 85% of that Razzle code mm -hmm. into some sort of like just into a, um, a basic, yeah, I would call it like a fork effectively. And what I realized is that like realistically, the stuff after scope was much smaller than that. It wasn't going to be, wasn't going to replace Razzle. Um, I couldn't, I basically after like a week or so was like, what any option? Optimization I'm going to make to after, I'm going to want to make to Razzle. So why are they two different projects? So I've reduced after scope to just be the React components and just um, concerned with data fetching and code splitting and giving us like a drop in solution there that gives you a story if you, if you want to, if you don't want to make those decisions for you. Like this, I've been doing this, I've been using this particular approach for about a year now. So it's been battle tested. Um, and I think it's used on Coinbase.com now on some of the on some of the marketing pages and such. And so yeah, it's sort of an alternative there just to give that a solution. But um it just works with Razzle. It actually works without Razzle too. You can do you can use after in whatever project you want. It's um after is the best described uh or I got the idea for after after reading an article by I forgot who it was from Airbnb about the way they do some of their React server side rendering um code splitting. Um and I read about that and I was like, oh okay. I think I can use that in, 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 in my applications. And the other thing too, is that we're hundred percent TypeScript uh, at the Palmer group. So I knew that whatever solution we were going to use for code splitting, isomorphic code splitting was going to need to work with TypeScript and was not going to be able to rely on a Babel loader to like rewrite stuff or do any magic. So that was another constraint that after needed, um, which other solutions didn't seem to leverage at the time that I when I went looking. So that's sort of the, pro the the thinking behind after. So do you all use any GraphQL at the Palmer group? And if like, and this, I guess is a separate question. Like how do you work with GraphQL on a server side uh, or a server rendered app? Does that even 
like does that work the same way like as 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 it would on a client app or is that something people do even so it's a good question so we don't use graphql in production i use it on a couple side projects but basically yes you can use graphql on certain with server side rendering the catch is you need to the way apollo works is it actually walks your entire tree and then looks at all your just static analysis and then ends up pulling out all the data, making one request, and then sending it back down, kind of in the way I described earlier. Um, I don't I think Apollo ends up walking your rendering twice, basically, because it has to walk your whole tree and it does it recursively. So that can be a performance hit, but uh, also because you're blocking rendering until all your data is fetched. Um, you can, that, that's sort of, you know, the part of the GraphQL story there. Um, we don't use GraphQL. Uh, we're experimenting with it right now. Uh, I actually was going to may give a talk at a, a meetup at the GraphQL meetup called almost GraphQL, which is basically the way we have, um, gotten around, I will say using it or how some applications probably you can get a lot of the benefits if you make some architectural decisions about mostly your backend. So our backends are in Java and because Java is a statically typed language and because of the way that the the frameworks, our backend frameworks work, we get perfect Swagger documentation basically for free. And we leverage that perfect Swagger documentation to code gen, uh, to generate SDKs for our APIs. So what does that mean? Uh, we just run this command that analyzes all the Swagger responses and all the documentation and spits out a perfect JavaScript SDK for our client, for their APIs, and it produces perfect TypeScript types. And so if we have a change in the API and we rerun the code gen, we can just look at the TypeScript errors and we see that there. And we kind of forked the Swagger code gen. It's ours is based on Axios. So we have our favorite data fetching um, tool, uh, wrap around fetch. And yeah, it's just basically having an SDK to your own application. We don't test fetches anymore. So it's not like we don't mock fetch requests on the client. It's just not something we need to do anymore because we know it's perfect every time. And, um, there are also some cool abstractions that we're able to make because a lot of our APIs have very similar um, structures to them. And so because like all of our CRUD endpoints work identically the same way, we actually can do some interesting stuff with caching um, uh, similar entities, basically, in a normalized cache. So not too dissimilar to the way that Apollo caches its um, requests and queries and responses and data um, internally. We have a, we have a similar thing that does that kind of caching. Um, and we also can, we also have written out, uh, que like query, similar components to Rapallo's new query components where these are render props where you pass in, um, the parameters and, uh, to this component and it spits back out a render prop with data loading error. And so you get that same kind of query component utility and, and flexibility without GraphQL. Uh, and so the two of those, th th those factors combined is why I like to call it like almost GraphQL because, uh, while we don't, well, definitely overfetching can be something we always need to watch out for. And one of the things we don't get, cause we don't, um, we don't get the benefit of, um, it's, it's, it's a decent workaround. I'll say we are experimenting with GraphQL. Um, no, that and, sounds really, really, it's kind of it sounds like they have a pretty sophisticated, um, like workflow that actually sounds like it simplifies everything. 
and does a lot of uh, a lot of the work for you. I really like how the how you're you were saying that it creates the types for you for TypeScript. Um, I know that you you know it's kind of like a pain sometimes, but also the uh, API generation based on your Swagger documentation that's pretty cool. Yeah, the TypeScript types um, you can do this GraphQL. You can generate TypeScript types. I believe there's Apollo code gen. Um, so we'd end up doing that anyway. Um, the other big constraint for us right now is we don't, this is going to be controversial. Uh, we don't use null in our JavaScript, uh, 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 just avoid it. Um, so GraphQL null is a very like big part of GraphQL. So we would definitely need to like write some sort of function to coalesce that and remove null and replace it with undefined. We use undefined to represent emptiness pretty much at all times. Um, so other parts of it that are like, I guess custom, but no, you're totally right. Like it's, it's, it's a workflow, I would say. Um, and TypeScript powers all of it. It would not be, I would never, if we didn't use TypeScript, I would never feel confident doing, using this kind of workflow. Um, we also have been using TypeScript for over a year now on all of our, on all our projects. So most, I would say we have 95% type coverage and the 5% are like all external libraries, not like mission critical. Um, so, you know, it's kind of crazy. You can just make a, a, a change in the API, run the code gen and just fix the errors. And you have complete confidence that you are, that you've updated the application to the latest version and it can, you're good to go. But that's only because we have perfect types. Um, I couldn't even imagine how we would do that with, I mean, we, there are changes we've made to, to applications, sweeping changes that I don't think we would have attempted had we not had TypeScript types for almost everything. Very cool. Very cool. Well, um, I'd love to uh, talk to you about some of the stuff we're working on at AWS, maybe uh, some AppSync stuff off, uh, offline one day and kind of just walk you through some of the managed GraphQL stuff we have going on just, to, just so you're aware of it. And if you ever had like an opportunity that you wanted to kind of like, you know, try it out, um, like on a prototype or something, you could check it out. No, yeah, we, uh, I would love to, I would love to try that. We are, we are working on a couple of projects. I have two or three side projects that are using Apollo on the client. Uh, and then one of them is using Urkel, Ken, Ken's library. Uh, but yeah, I'll, you know, it's something we've, we were something we're definitely looking into just because with GraphQL, you get all these benefits of sort of partitioning your application as well. Um, certainly like slicing and dicing stuff seems like it'd be easier. Um, working, collaborating with multiple people, it just seems like it, it, it makes, it makes a lot of sense, but, uh, we'll get there. I think, I think it's the future. Are you writing your own GraphQL servers? Uh, we probably will. What I think the way we'll do it is we will al allow our APIs to accept a list of IDs, and then we'll probably put up a node server to prototype in front of it that will use Data Loader to batch those requests out. Um, just I think that's how, that's how I think we'll prototype with it, and we'll show, we'll stand up some sort of little node server, and then it won't be extremely efficient, but it will work. Uh, and so, yeah, we'll use like data loader to um, hit our API and with a batch query basically for a given resource, I think. Um, there are also some concerns that we've had about per how complex permissions work in GraphQL. Um, we would, we definitely something I would love to talk to you offline about, but just the having uh, a large number of complicated permissions matrix that we sometimes have on certain applications could get hairy. Um, but maybe it's possible. I'm not sure. Um, we may end up having multiple endpoints or some sort of configuration system there. I'm not sure. We have, we still have yet to explore that, but that's one of the things that 
we need to like get more, get deep on before we can proceed. I think from 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 my like uh, understanding of the problem. Uh, but the other thing we're thinking about too is if we do end up liking it, is because we're in static type land in Java. Um, you know, there's this discussion of well, once if we're supporting both REST and GraphQL, maybe you have some insight into this. You know, are you REST first or are you GraphQL first from a developer perspective? Um, and you kind of need to pick one. It seems like. Um, and so there's also some client constraints with that. Sometimes they still need to support REST APIs. Uh, so yeah, that's just sort of the, the, the art where, where my head's at on the subject. Um, I don't know have you, have you found people going, transitioning towards more GraphQL first versus like REST first when they're trying to do both. That's an interesting question because like in the GraphQL community and a lot of the blog posts and, and the, and the, um, talks you hear about GraphQL, um, the assumption is everything is GraphQL, like, like, but in a real, in the real world, um, a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the successful applications that are running that want to try GraphQL are not going to be able to transition all the way to GraphQL. They just have too much legacy, um, APIs and stuff like that. Uh, at least, you know, at, at first, maybe down the road, you know, it's possible to transition all the way. Also, there's, um, you know, there's just so many different circumstances around everyone's applications and around their use cases that it's kind of rare that you can um, just completely replace your REST endpoints with GraphQL right away. It's something that can be done probably in, in every app given the, the right amount of time. But but in reality, if something's working, um, like, you know, it's really a tough decision to convince everyone in your company that you want to just throw that away and replace it with, with GraphQL just for the hell of it. Um, and stuff like that. So like most no, yeah. of the actual real world use cases that I've seen, at least if you're, if you're starting a greenfield project, of course, it's a lot easier to go all the way GraphQL. But what I've seen actually is a combination of both REST and GraphQL. Um, and then that kind of like goes back to like how you implement GraphQL. And if you look at some of the clients like Apollo, a lot of times like, you know, the, the way that the data is fetched and the way that you're, you're accessing the data is like, like by component, if you're using like those however components, but a lot of times you need that data available, um, you know, elsewhere in your application as well. So you kind of like, um, have to start thinking about, do you want to use something more along the lines of a GraphQL fetch API where you can actually just work with Redux and MobX or whatever your state management library, library right. is? Um, so like, you know, I, I think that would be a good, a good, um, blog post or, or something like that, like, uh, for someone to kind of do some case, uh, some case studies on and like talk to some companies and like talk about their experience. Maybe I can kind of see if I can do something like that because yeah, in reality, like rarely can you go all the way GraphQL on a, on a legacy or an existing Brownfield application. And even on a uh, brand new application, you know, sometimes it's, it's, uh, it doesn't make sense, you know, because maybe, um, like you don't really like need it for certain use cases. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I would say there's not like a, a clean answer for that question. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, maybe because we live in, you know, because again, we, I mentioned before, we had really structured APIs. Um, and we have some population, let's take an example, like a simple entity that has tags. Like we would track, we would already like have it as tag IDs and the list of IDs. Like with like, if we went to GraphQL, like we could make some rule maybe where like it, if it ends with IDs, we even know to expand it. And like, maybe there's some cool static analysis we could do on our Java stuff to like automatically generate the graph, like likely GraphQL endpoints and stuff there. But yeah, I was just sort of curious to see like, yeah, if we have a app that is very rest heavy, that migration process, 
it seems like it's a, it seems like nobody really knows. What I have learned, at least with my research, is that you can, there are some things you can mess up with GraphQL. If you, and you only, like, if you do pagination wrong from the beginning, you'll be sad. Um, that's sort of what I've gathered is that, like, there's definitely some, some conventions that are probably worth sticking to. I don't know. What are your thoughts there? Well, around, you mentioned authorization earlier. One of the things that we're focusing, like, heavily, heavily on actually is, making the authorization use case something that's that's fairly trivial because it's not an easy problem to solve. Um, and, and a lot of the, you know, and, and, and when you're building your own GraphQL server, it's actually pretty complex to get that right and actually have it, you know, secure. So like, um, you know, when you're working with these managed services like Firebase or, or AppSync or whatever, I think the advantage that, that, that we're seeing like customers that are using it that are liking about it is like we have like, you know, we have teams of people that are like super, super, um, experienced and have seen all of these issues and they're kind of, you know, you're getting all of this expertise, like, and, and you have like a pre-built solution. Um, so like with authorization and, and stuff like that, yeah, let's talk about that. And I can kind of show you kind of what, what, what we're doing. And I think that, um, like when you're talking about different roles, I think is that is that kind of what you're saying? And you want to only allow access to certain endpoints or certain yeah. Some stuff's like only read only. Some stuff's going to be, yeah. uh, and then there's some that's read only but not updatable. And then there's all those kinds of crazy stuff that you know business illogic, if you will, uh, right, right. that happens when you have complex applications. And uh, figuring that out for ourselves has been interesting. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know if there's the best way to do that, but yeah, somebody who figures out that kind of thing. Uh, would, would be, you know, that would be awesome. Um, and definitely, you know, staying, staying dry and keeping things properly abstracted, I think is important too, in those kinds of situations where you're not, not talking directly to the database in your resolver, for example, those kinds of abstractions we've sort of picked up in, in our experimentation. But yeah, very curious about that. I don't know. Hopefully, you know, I think how old is GraphQL? Well, I don't know, a couple, five, six years, five or six years old. Yeah. Uh, nice. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully there'll be some best practices that form. But um, very cool. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's all very, very, very cool stuff. Two of our team members came from American Express, and they d are very familiar with Relay and Relay Modern. So, um, and that's obviously very, very popular too. Although I think less so than Apollo at this point. But um, I'm sure they've been pushing for that for 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 some different stuff. So it's been cool to uh, hear them talk about that. Well, um, it looks like we're kind of getting close on time. Is there anything else that you wanted to kind of discuss before we go ahead and get to the picks? No, I just, uh, just, uh, this has been awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah, I've learned a lot. I was like thinking, um, because we had Jared on at, uh, the React Native Radio podcast a couple of weeks ago. Maybe it's been a month ago now. And I was thinking like, we're going to be talking about the same stuff, but here we are like, um, I just am now realizing how much other stuff he's also done <laughs> other than Formic because we Thank talked you. about Formic. So, yeah, um, like completely different stuff. So it's pretty cool. Um, Thanks, I guess you. I'll go ahead and do a pick first and then I'll go ahead, I guess, and let you get to your pick. Do you run your own freelance business or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side? Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere available from any device uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. 
You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. All right, so uh, my pick is Proton Native. It's a way to create native desktop applications um, using React. It's pretty cool. Um, if you if you already know React or React Native, it's kind of really easy to pick up. So you can pretty much start building desktop apps fairly quickly. And I think it's a pretty new library. Um, I've, I just heard about it like a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure. I'm looking at the repo now. It looks like it's been out. Or at least it looks like the first commit was like three months ago. So I'm not sure if it was released then or if it's been just recently released. But yeah, it's really cool. Proton Native. Um, and that's it. That's my only pick for today. Jared, do you have any picks? Yes. So my, my two picks, um, hold on. My internet is a little shaky right now. My two picks. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. So my two, all right. So my two picks, uh, first one is guess JS on GitHub, which is, uh, the title goes libraries and tools for enabling data driven user experiences on the web. Something that's come out from, I think Google and the, Gist of it is they're doing really cool stuff with um, using machine learning based on your Google Analytics data to do stuff like prefetching and bundle loading and other crazy, crazy stuff. So that seems pretty cool and definitely something to check out and keep an eye on. The other one is I saw this Zendesk release their component library, their React component library called Garden. And it takes a really interesting approach. Um, it offers like these concepts of like a container, which is the a components logic, an element, which is basically the defaults that you, your default use cases. And then the primitive, which is like the view, like the dumbest presentational component. Uh, I think it's really interesting to see that sort of in React. So you have like button container, button view, and then button. Um, the container has like all the accessibility stuff. And then the, the view is the colors and that's really customizable. Um, and then the, the default is the element itself, and that's the combination of the two. But what's cool is by exposing the primitive and then like the container, which is the logic part of it, you can swap stuff out because the, if the containers are just responsible for the rent, the, just the logic, and they give back render control, then you know the, the sky's the limit. You could potentially share, you know, just get a lot out of those special situations when you you need to, that extra layer of customization. It's kind of like like really flows with a lot of my philosophy, which is build things with a battery pack included, but then give people the ability to open, open up the hood and, and, and get their hands dirty. Uh, so yeah, check out that the garden uh, by the, the, the team at Zendesk. Very, very cool. Well, this is my first time hearing about that. I'm, I'm checking it out now. This will be really cool um, for React Native also, <laughs> I was thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's built with style of components. So very opinionated in that sense. But because again, the container like view element, which I've never heard it described that way before, but that sounds good to me. You should be able to swap it all, swap out some of the views with your own styles. Um, I'm sure, you know, adopting that in React Native will be something that someone will do. But yeah, I'm really excited to play with some of this stuff. All right. Well, uh, Jared, thanks for coming on and, and um, talking Always. with us today. Really Always a pleasure. 
So um, that wraps up this episode of React Roundup. Thanks for listening, and we'll see everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>